say the global economy is still decelerating. You're seeing this continued slowdown. Uh, we think a recession is on the horizon. It could start as early as the fourth quarter. If the Fed right now is projecting that we're going to go from a 3.5% unemployment rate today to maybe a 4% rate in six or nine months, it's not going to just stop at 4% if they're correct. Mm -hmm. It's heading to 5 or 6 and that means there's going to be other effects happening in the economy if you see that many more people lose jobs. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. As the market struggles to find momentum here, the question investors are wrestling with right now is, will the rally resume or might it be time to get out of the pool? Oxbow Advisors is a financial advisory firm that specializes in the needs of high net worth clients. I spoke a few weeks back with its founder and CEO, Ted Oakley. Today, we've got the good fortune of sitting down with Chance Finucan, Oxbow's chief investment officer, to learn more about what the firm sees ahead for the rest of the year and how it's positioning its clients' assets for it. Chance, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Adam. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Um, you know, like I said, we've had Ted on the program a couple of times, but this is your first appearance. Um, really nice to have you on. Welcome. Um, a lot of questions here for you. I know you're the guy. Uh, you're where the rubber meets the road there at Oxbow, right? You're the guy who's actually making the big decisions, coming up with the portfolio strategy. Um, Want to get into kind of all the things that you're doing right now. But if we can, let's just kick things off at a really high level. What's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? We'd say the global economy is still decelerating. You're seeing this continued slowdown. Uh, we think a recession is on the horizon. It could start as early as the fourth quarter. And really not seeing anything that changes our view on that, with central banks around the world continuing to be pretty restrictive in their policy and seeing more and more leading data points that suggest that the final outcome of this cycle will be a recession. And then in terms of the financial markets, outside of a couple of countries, like maybe Japan and India, that you're seeing some acceleration and, and some good performance in their equity markets, the other stock markets around the world, whether it's uh, Europe or China, or you know, starting to see the US show a little bit of a plateau here after rising in the first half of the year, we would say it looks concerning. And for us, we've been defensive for more than a year now. And I think we're gonna to continue to have that stance while we try to be very prudent with any additional allocations we make uh, across riskier assets. Okay. Um, gosh, uh, a lot of places I wanna take this. Because you mentioned recession a couple of times, let me just ask you this question because I've been asking it of a, a number of recent guests. Um, Coming into 2023, uh, at the end of 2022, recession looked all but inevitable. Uh, and then it didn't arrive, right? And we had this big run up in the markets for reasons we can talk about in a bit, if you like. Um, but uh, I'd just love to get your two cents on, on why do you think the recession didn't arrive when so many people think it did? And then if you can tie into why you're more confident that it's going to happen on the timeline you just mentioned. Yeah, I think it depends on which leading indicators you were looking at. So there were some leading indicators that suggested that sometime, even in the first half of 2023, a recession would really start to take hold. But there are other indicators, whether it's the time it takes on average from the first rate hike by the Federal Reserve before a recession starts, which on average is 22 months, uh, just shows how long that lag is before 
uh, changes in monetary policy really start to shift through and affect business decisions and, and household decisions. Uh, you can also look at when there's an inversion in the yield curve, whether you're comparing the two-year treasury yield versus the 10-year yield or the three-month versus 10-year. When those rates invert and you've actually got a higher yield at the shorter end of the curve rather than the long end, that still takes a long time, more than a year for a recession to usually take hold. So if you're looking at it from that perspective, I think we've just gotten used to expecting something to happen very quickly when normally this can take 18 or 24 months to play out before you really start to see a typical economic slowdown and then deterioration. Okay. And, and do you think it's more than that, which is just, hey, these things just take longer than you know most people expect or were expecting at the turn of the year? Um, or do you think it's influenced by, um, while we have the Fed putting pumping hard on the monetary brakes right now, on the fiscal side, they're still very much stamping on the gas with the deficit spending that's happening right now. I've had some people um, posit that the you know high degree of deficit spending that we've been doing this year has actually kind of pushed the recession off into the future. Um, and maybe it's a combination of the two. I don't know. What, what do you think? We'd agree. I think everyone was a bit surprised seeing that government spending number be as high as it was uh, in the first half of this year. If you're looking at the breakdown of the components of GDP growth. And when we look at that, we actually think that's going to make for a difficult comparison in the first half of next year. So even though this third quarter GDP growth number that we're in right now probably be pretty good, somewhere between two and three percent, we would expect that to start to really slow down in the fourth quarter and then in the first half of next year. And unless they're going to continue that sort of deficit spending on the fiscal side, it's going to be difficult to keep up that same growth rate heading through spring of 2024. Okay. And um, you, you just mentioned maybe GDP growth of 2 to 3% in Q3. Um, right now, if we total over to Atlanta Fed's GDP Now page, um, on the day we're recording, I think it's still somewhere up around 5.8, 5.9%. So it sounds like you expect that number to come down pretty substantially as we get further into the quarter. Yeah, we do. They actually, they've had numbers projected that high in the middle of a quarter uh, in the past. Last time that happened, it ended up being a 2% GDP growth rate for that quarter. So what they do is they're pulling numbers as data points come in, and they've really only got one month out of the three uh, for the third quarter to go off of so far. And the housing component is such a significant component that when you have a beat in housing numbers, like we had in July, uh, that shifts their expectations higher but they typically have been over optimistic and then you see the number come down. So we wouldn't expect that five or 6% annualized projection to actually come through. Okay, yeah, because you know I think some people would say, well, Chance, if you think that a recession's coming and maybe could even hit at some point in Q4, that doesn't seem to comport with an almost 6% you know, GDP growth in a quarter. And what I hear you saying is, yeah, I don't think we're going to have near 6% growth. I think it's going to be a fraction of that, probably, you know, at least half, if not less. Yeah, that's right. It, it'll still, we would expect it to be a positive number, uh, just given what we've seen so far. But one thing for people to realize is you can go back and look at the start of recessions going all the way back to the 1960s. And if you look at the quarter before the start of the recession, very often you see an annualized GDP growth number in that final quarter of about two to 3% growth. 
So you'll see numbers still look good right up until the point that they don't on that GDP line. So that's not something to say that like, for instance, if the third quarter does come in at two or 3%, that, oh, everything's fine. And anyone who thinks that a fourth quarter or first half next year, negative GDP, uh, that they have nothing to go off of. Okay. Um, so you mentioned that um, more and more of the leading data that you're looking at looks recessionary. Um, I, I'd love to get a sense of, of what leading indicators you're looking at most closely right now that are kind of giving you confidence in that. And to kind of kick off your answer, if we could talk, it's not an indicator, but it's just, it's a, a milestone that's coming up here, which is uh, student loans going into repayment. So barring some sort of, you know, 11th hour reprieve uh, that comes out of DC, it does look like 40 million borrowers are going to have their loans start going into repayment um, in the next 30 days, right? I think it's I think they start accruing interest again as of September 1st, and the checks, the first payments have to start arriving by the beginning of October. Um, if I'm doing my math right, I think it's about, on average, something like $300 uh, per borrower per month. Um, and so, you know, that that adds up pretty quickly over 40 million borrowers. Um, that's money that has been going into the economy for the most part. I, I think in the vast cases, those people have not been squirreling that money away. They've actually been spending it on consumption. All of a sudden that comes out. So um, how big of an impact do you expect that to have on the economy? For the student loans, we wouldn't expect it to be a huge impact uh, for those 40 million households that are going to have to resume paying student loans. I think I've seen sort of like a low, maybe even mid single digit impact on their spending uh, for that portion of US households. But I think when you include that along with the mosaic of just all of these sort of life decisions that with a higher interest rate environment, people it may not affect them right away if they don't have to buy a new house or buy a new car or resume the student loans. But over time, the longer that the Federal Reserve keeps rates this high, eventually people are going to have to start making decisions that they are going to feel that impact of higher rates. And that's where you could see a really significant jump in uh, their expense base, and then they have to pull back. And one thing that we keep track of is the amount of money going towards discretionary uh, good spending versus non-discretionary. And from 2020 and 2021, there was definitely a more exaggerated focus on the discretionary spending side, which makes sense when People weren't traveling as much and you had a little bit more excess savings to spend on goods. But since early 2022, it's shifted more and more to non-discretionary, which tells us that the impact of higher expenses, that inflation that is still impacting people, uh, and then you start throwing in things like the student loans, it's only going to add more and more towards people just having to spend on what they really need and pulling back on everything else. All right. And imagine if you combine that with uh, savings rate now having plummeted, um, consumer debt balances, uh, you know, revolving credit balances like credit cards and stuff like that back at record highs. Um, those are, I guess I would say, concomitant signs of a consumer that's continuing to struggle, having to fund more and more of their consumption on credit. And it sounds like they're mostly now using that to buy essentials, not frivolities like they were during COVID. Yeah, uh, there's a couple of different ways you can look at recent data points to confirm that. So 
First, uh, your point about credit card usage. Uh, David Rosenberg recently pointed out a stat that they sometimes will post quarterly changes in credit card delinquency rate. And the delinquency rate on bank, uh, bank given out credit cards, those now uh, have hit a delinquency rate that last was seen in 2012. But the difference is in 2012, the unemployment rate was still 8% compared mm-hmm. to a 3.5% unemployment rate today. So you're not even factoring in that people are going delinquent on their credit card bills because they lost a job. This is just higher expenses and not being able to keep up. Another area that you're able to look at is we've seen a lot of retailers report their quarterly earnings in the last couple of weeks. And there's been a very significant difference between more staples-oriented retailers like Walmart still reporting good numbers. And then you saw what happened with more discretionary retailers like Macy's or Dick's Sporting Goods that are seeing a significant pullback in spending and more delinquencies on the credit cards that they issue. Uh, interesting. Uh, with the, In the case of Dick's Sporting Goods, too, I know that part of their underperformance was um, due to theft, right, which is due to sort of the rampant shoplifting that's been going on across the country. And I think that in itself is a sign of a struggling consumer, right, where people get to the point where they just feel like the only way that they're going to get by is to go in and, and you know, grab things off shelves and run, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, your point, too, about... Um, uh, you know, we're seeing uh, elevated delinquencies delinquencies at levels that were commensurate in the past with high unemployment, right? Which makes sense. People don't have jobs they can't pay, right? Don't have income they can't pay. Um, you can make a really direct analogy to the federal deficit right now, right? Where, um, you know, we basically are said many times in this program recently, we're running essentially a wartime deficit in terms of its its uh, its percentage GDP um, in a peacetime economy um, where we have unemployment. We, we've never put this way. We've never run a, a deficit this high as a percent of GDP with an unemployment rate this low. Right. So it just says both at the individual household level and at the national level. Um, we're struggling to make ends meet even during quote unquote good times, right? So it does raise the specter if you're correct about a recession arriving. It's like, wow, well, what are we what are we going to be doing when times are tough, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we think about this a lot because we're always trying to consider the incentives or the motives of the key players involved, whether it's the Federal Reserve or the US government. And I think the number one focus for Jay Powell at the Federal Reserve is bringing down inflation. And we think people are underestimating just how long he might keep interest rates high uh, to really try and make sure that the inflation rate can get down to 2% or below. But what he also needs to have happen is there's enough of a slowdown and potentially a recession that he can feel confident that he can lower rates back to a more normal level, say two or two and a half percent on the Fed funds rate, so that those interest expenses on the U.S. Treasury debt is not going to be annualizing at a $1 trillion rate, like what we're starting to look at we'll be paying uh, going forward. That's not something that fits with the overall fiscal equation for the United States. They can't keep rates this high, so they really need to slow things down so they can cut the rates, but they got to get inflation down first. So it's sort of a, a domino effect, but we do think that's why he will keep rates high for as long as possible to make sure that things have really come back down to a, what he would consider to be a normal level. Okay, so let's let's talk about inflation and interest rates then. So, um, you know, 
inflation's come down a fair amount from its highs from last year, right? Um, we've come down from from nine percent to three percent. Um, uh, we're seeing it begin to bump back up again, and, and to a certain extent, that was expected with just the math of, of, of base effects. Um, but also, um, I, I have had some recent discussions with folks on this channel about how the remaining inflation may prove stickier and harder to remove than than the progress we've made so far to date, right? And it's been posited sort of like the the Pareto principle. Um, you know, twenty percent of the effort is expended to get rid of the first eighty percent of inflation, but the real you know, the majority of the effort now is is going to be spent getting it down from three to two, right? And there have been people that have been saying, and there's been a lot of trial balloons recently floated, of well, maybe the Fed will just raise right its inflation target to three percent, and it can say, oh, well, you know, job done, right? Um, but Powell seemed to really directly address that last week and said, our goal is two percent. We are not wavering from that. You know, uh, we are going to be as uh, higher for longer until we get inflation down to two percent. Uh, how? How, how successful do you think the Fed is going to be with inflation? Is it is it is it going to have still more of a wrestling match ahead of it? Or, you know, some people are saying the dragon's been killed. It's just all over but the crying and with forces of disinflation and deflation and arriving recession, inflation is going to be cured anyways. What, what do you think? Yeah. So first, just we don't think that he's going to move the target and say that 3% inflation is the new goal for the average. Uh, we think he's very focused on maintaining the credibility of the Federal Reserve as an institution, and he knows that they have to get it back down to 2% or below just to show that they're still capable of doing that. But to your point, we would agree with some of the previous people you've had on your show that it's going to be difficult to get from the current 3% level down to 2%. Uh, we would actually say, like others have, that uh, we're going to be drifting a little bit higher and that you're probably going to be between three and three and a half percent for several more quarters. And uh, until you start to see more parts of the economy deteriorate, uh, some of that probably related to jobs and wage growth coming down, it's going to be difficult to really see that uh, trajectory from nine percent down to two or below be completed. And that's why when we look at uh, like you know, we're looking at what the the market's reacting to today, where you've got the the new jolts job openings number comes out lower than expected, conference board uh, expectations numbers are lower than expected, and people are thinking, oh, that's great. That means there'll be no more rate hikes. They'll start cutting rates in May of next year, and we'll kind of get this perfect sort of economy and market that we want. We don't think that's how he wants this to play out. He really wants to keep rates high for as long as is necessary to achieve that 2% goal. We just think it's going to take a while and it's really going to test how committed he is to achieving it. All right. So the ways in which that Powell can continue to um, you know, fight inflation is he can keep rates higher for longer and just wait for the lag effects to continue to fully arise and, and bring things down. Um, of course, he could he could add more fuel to the fire, and he could continue to hike rates from here. You know, you you, you mentioned three to three and a half percent inflation for quarters, right? With an S. Um, so, I guess first question is is how likely do you think it is that um, rates federal funds rate could go even higher from here? 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's possible. I think we don't usually try and say for certainty, oh, it's going to move higher. I think the key is just that it's going to be at this level or even a little bit above it for uh, at least several more quarters. And if that's the case, that just allows more and more time for that sort of quantitative tightening, whether it's the actual QT that's happening or the restrictive rates to uh, slow down economic activity. And it leaves more time also for any sort of exogenous shock that could happen in the economy that would send the uh, market and the economy into a recession. I think that's where we're focused is just, I think one thing maybe just to pull back is rather than thinking so much about, is this going to imminently happen? It's more thinking about what is the inevitable outcome? And the way that we think he is currently playing his hand is that the inevitable outcome will be a recession. uh, And it pays to really be defensive and thoughtful in terms of how you allocate assets and that's sort of the approach that we want to always maintain until we see the conditions change. Great. And that's where I'm going, by the way. We are we are heading towards the how are you allocating assets question. Um, you know, when we talk about these higher rates in, in QT, but particularly the rates, um, the analogy I use is it's almost like the Fed is dialing up the pull of the force of gravity on the economy. Right. It's like it's like being on a planet where the gravity gravitational force is, is just higher than it is here. Right. So it's just harder for the economy to move forward. It just moves more slowly. And uh, when you were talking about, you know, consumer households earlier and, and saying, look, the loan repayment in and of itself isn't a massive deal. But but given that it's just one of many injuries that the consumer household is, is having to endure right now, it could be that straw that breaks the back for a number of them. Right. And so when the gravitational force is this heavy, yeah, any anything that adds an additional stone to its back, you know, um, just pulls down with that much greater force. And of course, everybody's sort of concern here is that the U.S. economy got a, habituated, addicted, if you will, to ZERP, to historically low interest rates. And we're now up here at five, you know, and a quarter plus, maybe even higher. Who knows, right? Um, how long can it move under that force of gravity before things really snap and break? And of course, you know, I think a lot of the pivoters think, hey, you know, I'm excited when there's bad news um, like the Jolts report, because I think something's breaking and the Fed's going to have to step in and rescue. Pal obviously is saying, I'm going to keep flying this plane at this altitude until inflation gets where I need it to be. Um how do you see this resolving? Because the longer we hang out here, if we hang out here at quarters at this amount and inflation you know, persists the way that you think, um, the odds of, of more and more stuff really breaking, you know, it, it increases pretty substantially. Will Powell let it break and let the, let the hemorrhaging happen if inflation is still stubbornly above his target here? We think the two are pretty much tied together. Uh, in order to see inflation clearly get to 2% or below, it usually means that something does break because in the past, recessions, even a more, even in a more inflationary environment, 
you will see inflation come down. You'll see long-term bond yields come down. So we would actually expect the two to be somewhat linked. And that will be the way that he gets inflation back to his target and would then give him uh, the ability to lower rates after he says that his job is complete. Uh, but for that to happen, you'll likely have seen the prices of assets in the financial market come down significantly. And I think that's probably the thing that's most interesting to us is uh, on days like today where the market is trading higher after the JOLTS job openings data comes out, people are taking bad news as good news. There's cases of this in the past where when the Fed uh, first started cutting rates in the early part of the great financial crisis, you would see stock prices move up in the short term. But if you are heading towards a bad economic environment, eventually that bad economic data takes over and you will see uh, share prices fall. So we wouldn't get caught trying to chase any move higher here at these prices. We think it's much more to be focused on where the end outcome is in this cycle. Okay, yeah, and I'm I'm always this is why I hammer on the lag effect so much, and and feel free to agree or disagree with me here, but um, you know, so many of the people that are again hoping for the pivot that are cheering today's bad jolts data, as you mentioned, um, uh, in their minds they think, okay, great, you know, the Fed's going to have to pivot soon, and then when the Fed pivots and rates start coming down, then it's it's back to the old salad days, and you know, prices are just going to shoot the moon as a result because right? that's what we're used to. But if you go back and you look at every other period of time where the Fed has hiked rates until really things started to to start breaking, um, really when the Fed pivoted you then were followed by quarters of pain and, and declining financial asset prices. And the thing to keep in mind with this is that the lag effect is it's a bolus of things that move as like a big bell curve over time, right? Which is why, to your point, even though the Fed really started, you know, its tightening efforts well over a year and a half ago, we still haven't really seen the full force of that yet because it takes a while to go through the economy. Well, it's the same thing when you cut. Right. When you cut, you're cutting because things look bad. Well, you're just beginning to see the, you know, the 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 real mass of 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 the prior policy. Right. And that has to play out through the system. And then at some lag of maybe a year, year and a half plus, whatever, then the policy shift begins to get reflected. But that's way in the future here. Right. So, you know, I, I think people just have this really erroneous, maybe magical thinking right now that, A, the lag effect doesn't matter from all the tightening stuff, right? So we don't have to bring down asset prices like stocks or housing, right? And then secondly, that if and when the Fed does pivot, hey, we're going to magically go back tomorrow to the happy days where it's like, no, you're going to be in probably for a world of pain for a good while. Yeah, I think it's a great point that the Fed moves on lagging data. They're not going to try to be predictive, uh, even if they see something that suggests that Let's say they thought inflation was going to come in really low. They can't move ahead of that and start cutting rates when the headline inflation number is above their target because most of the country is going to think, what are you doing that for? So they're always going to be a little bit late. And by the time they would move, like you said, things are usually already breaking. But once that momentum on the negative side has started, it's very difficult to just stop it on a dime, uh, even with the Fed trying to take what actions they can. And the best example of that would be to look at changes in the unemployment rate 
through a recession. And once you see the unemployment rate rise by half of 1%, it usually means that it's going to rise by at least one and a half percent, if not 2% or more in total. So if the Fed right now is projecting that we're going to go from a three and a half percent unemployment rate today to maybe a 4% rate in six or nine months, it's not going to just stop at 4% if they're correct. Mm -hmm. It's heading to five or six. And that means there's going to be other effects happening in the economy if you see that many more people lose jobs. All right. So um, so let's talk about this then. So, you know, the, the question I want to ask you is, is can the economy handle a cost of capital this high? You know, can, can it handle interest rates at these levels? Um, uh, I mean, obviously, it sounds like you think that that they're going to bring the economy into recession. What what do you think is the most likely progression from here? How, how does the lag effect really begin to manifest from here in your eye? What, what are you going to be looking for? Yeah, so one example where I know the last time you interviewed our founding partner, Ted Oakley, he talked about some of the leading indicators that we follow. Uh, one of them uh, is watching the change in lending standards by banks around the United States. And those standards, uh, what it takes in order to lend to a small business or a household, they're tightening those standards substantially. And you can go back through decades of history when they've tightened like this, there's never been a false signal where it didn't lead to a recession. So right now, let's say about a third of lending uh, in the US economy comes from banks. That third is tightening substantially. And then the other two thirds, about say a third of that is uh, private credit. Uh, which is actually doing quite well. And I think that's been part of why things have stayed more resilient than expected, uh, that the private credit area was maybe not as built out decades past as it is today. And then the remaining area is that large companies can still go to the public markets and issue debt uh, and try to get some financing that way. But that's not an option for small businesses and households. So we think that that sort of slowdown uh, on the small business and household side that's not going to go away, especially when banks don't really know necessarily what their profitability is. They don't know what their asset level is, considering people are still pulling money out slowly to invest at a higher return in a CD or a three-month treasury bill, something else that can get them at least a 5% annual return rather than the very slow or small return you'd get uh, at a lot of these banks. All right. And, and presumably... Um... You know, I, I've shown some charts in some previous videos of the corporate debt that's coming up for um, that's maturing over the next couple of years. And, and it's a lot. It's like, I don't know, 600 billion or so this year, almost 800 billion next year, over a trillion in 2025. Um, so, you know, that's going to be weighing heavily on the corporate side of things. But they've got time. Right. And they've got some of the the venues that you just mentioned, but but small businesses and households don't. So they're probably going to be stumbling first, I imagine, in your timeline here. So we're going to see things like consumer spending, which obviously is 70% of today's economy. That's probably going to start getting injured first as we go along the process here. Yeah, we think that's right. And then the other area that we look at is within the public markets, uh, it's actually the smaller companies that have a much higher proportion of uh, debt that is sensitive to interest rates, whether that's variable rate debt or short-term debt that's coming due. They didn't raise as much long-term debt at fixed rates like large cap companies. 
So if you do want to be invested in the stock market, we would suggest staying more in smart areas within large cap uh, stocks rather than small cap, just because the small cap area is way more sensitive to the economic growth rate and is carrying more debt. Uh, we actually saw a recent piece of research that showed that uh, for the small cap market at large, uh, next year, a quarter of their EBITDA is going to be put towards just paying interest expenses. Whereas wow. for the large cap companies, it's less than 10% of their EBITDA since they have stronger balance sheets and you have a lot of these tech and healthcare businesses that have very little debt anyway. Wow. Okay. That's a great point. Um, so it sounds like um, in, in terms of some things that you're maybe bearish on is things like the Russell and the Wilshire right, which are filled with much more with the smaller cap companies. Yeah, we would view the, the Russell 2000 as a more broad view of the U.S. economic activity as a whole, as opposed to the S&P 500, which is dominated a lot by certain companies in a specific sector. And it's still interesting to us that since that low in the stock market in the fourth quarter of last year, the Russell 2000 really is not appreciated by much, nowhere close to what it normally would off of a great low so that tells us that there's still some issues going on. Another place to look within that is the regional banks. If you looked up the regional bank index, they fell off a cliff in share price uh, in March when a few of those banks went under. They're still at the same price today as they were five or six months ago after that fall. And usually if we're working our way out of a difficult economic environment, the financials and the banks in particular are playing a part in that. They're participating. But in this case, that's not happening, which tells us that this is a different situation that we need to continue to just monitor and, and be careful with what we're doing. All right. So I want to start heading into, you know, OK, what you're doing, given all this outlook. Right. Um, so I'm going to assume you're, you're probably staying away from smaller cap companies. Um, uh, I'm going to assume in general you're not super sanguine on stocks because given the outlook that you've painted, it sounds like you expect corporate earnings uh, to to be getting increasingly weighed upon by the issues that we've talked about here. Um, you're nodding, but I'll let you expound on this. Um, why don't I let you, why don't I just talk about equities in general? Um, but then of course I want to get over to bonds and interest rates because I think there's some really interesting things going on there right now. Sure. So just touch on those couple of points. So for small caps, uh, I think we would look in the small cap market eventually, but not at this point in time when we think uh, economic growth is slowing. Uh, one thing just for people to know when it comes to small caps is you really want to be specific about which individual companies you want to own. You want to look for small cap businesses that either have high free cash flow margins or have a high free cash flow yield. And that's going to be your best chance to do well within the small cap market. But you need a better entry point than what you have right now. Stepping that aside, if you just look at stocks in general, uh, you're right. We are being uh, pretty careful in terms of what we select. Going into this year, we had more exposure to cyclicals after the sell-off in 2022. Uh, we were buying a lot of the tech positions that we own, a lot of the consumer positions that we own for new stock clients of ours. But those have appreciated by so much that they've gotten ahead of our fair value estimate. So we're kind of not even going near those right now. And we've actually been adding in other areas of the market that are more defensive. 
And really, I think the focus for people should be on those areas of free cash flow margins or good free cash flow yield. And in a business that you've got some visibility that the cash flows will be there, even if the economic environment gets worse, because there are certain areas that might optically look like they've got good earnings right now. But if it's a consumer durables business that's selling cars or boats, or um, even like the home builders right now, we wouldn't be putting in at these prices. Uh, those are not areas where you can really bank on the cash flows being able to come through even in a difficult time. So we're really just trying to make sure we map out the downside and uh, try and keep our losses small if there are any and just pick spots in, uh, in certain areas. Okay. All right. So that's the equity side of things. Um, uh, over on the bond side, uh, really interesting time there, right? You know, we've been talking about how interest rates are high and that's kind of changed the game for everything. But uh, uh, suddenly uh, you can get a good yield on bonds, um, on safe bonds, which was something that, you know, wasn't the case uh, just a few years ago. Uh, and for a long time, it wasn't the case, right? Um, <clears throat> so, uh, I'm going to presume in your outlook, um, you, you, you're probably taking advantage of that. Um, I guess how, and how do you look at bonds in general? Um, you know, uh, the attractiveness of say us treasuries versus corporate bonds. Yeah, you're right. I think one way to look at this is you're always asking yourself when you look across financial markets, is there anything that looks obvious as sort of a, like a, a great opportunity that you wouldn't normally find? And in most places right now, there's no amazing opportunity. So it's a lot more nuanced just trying to make uh, small picks here or there, allocate in little ways. The one that looks to us like a really great opportunity is that you can get a five and a half percent annualized return on a six month treasury uh, or you know, close to that for a three month treasury. So we actually have our biggest position and the most allocation is in that short-term treasury. And we'll own a little bit out to about the two year mark in the treasury, but we probably have anywhere from four to six times as much exposure to the short-term treasury as we do to long-term bonds right now. We do think it's an interesting spot for long-term bonds, but it's really hard to beat a clear five and a half percent expected return uh, with no duration risk, no credit risk. And if you've got that as your opportunity cost, uh, you really are going to have a tough time trying to find something uh, else that you'd want to own. So that's really where our main focus is. Uh, we've found some opportunities in long-term municipal bonds that are high quality uh, for a little bit of exposure for our income accounts. And then in terms of beyond that in the bond world, we don't own anything in the corporate bond space, whether it's investment grade or high yield. And the reason for that is just the credit spreads have not widened at all. They're actually, I think, even narrower than average. And that's usually not the time that you'd want to be jumping into that side of the market. So our focus is just taking that five and a half percent and then looking for opportunities outside of that that would be even better. But it's a very good place to be to start. Great. Um, yeah. And I, I appreciate you sort of underscoring it. I, I did this in my conversation with Stephanie Pomboy the other day. It, it's not all that often where you get kind of like a, I don't want to say slam dunk or no brainer opportunity because that's that's overstating it, but where you just have a clearly superior or attractive investment opportunity. And it sounds like right now, if, if for the combination of risk and return, 
what you're getting right now on these short-term treasury instruments is just historically rare. And, uh, and, and especially since you can sit in them and, and it can be, you know, and you're in safety, like that's what's not to like. Right. And I got to say, like, I can't tell you how many times last year in 2022, as, as the markets were grinding downwards, where I, I heard from people, gosh, if, if I could just get a 4% return somewhere, that's all I want for my, with my money. I'd be totally happy forever. If I could just get 4% on my portfolio. Well, now people can, right, with complete safety. Um, and what's so funny is now some people are kind of grousing because while well, these AI stocks are doing so great, I'm, I'm angry I'm not in them. But it's like, well, Jesus, that's 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 just an aberrant, you know, potential bubble in the in process. Here you're getting actual, you know, decent return with absolute safety. Like, why would you regret that, right? So, anyways, I'm glad you underscored that. Um, the reason why you're sticking away from corporate bonds right now, just to make sure I think I understand your logic correctly, is as long as we're higher for longer, yields are likely to kind of persist at these levels. As the lag effect continues to arrive, recession potentially expresses itself, um, risk uh, investors are going to demand a higher yield in corporates for the increased risk that corporates have. And so you expect yields on corporate bonds to go even higher. And then given the inverse relationship between yields and prices, you think that corporate bond prices would go down. And that's really why you're not touching them right now. Do I have that correct? Yeah, that's right. So just to use high yield bonds as an example, uh, you typically are looking for, let's say, uh, at least a 6% gap uh, as more of a good buy spot uh, between the yield on a high yield corporate bond versus uh, a treasury yield of the same maturity. So when you've already got a 5.5% short-term treasury yield or a 4% 10-year yield, you're probably looking at, you want at least a 10% uh, yield on a, a junk bond before you'd really get interested and you're not there uh, at this time. So that's one that I think you'd really want to wait and see more fear in the marketplace and you would see that spread widen. But as we mentioned before, because these public companies are still attracting interest, from buyers uh, in the public market when they do need to issue debt, you're not seeing that credit spread widen. And part of us, we also kind of wonder if the fact that the last time we had a crisis in March of 2020, one of the Fed's ways of trying to help the market was going in and buying junk bond ETFs. Maybe people are assuming they would do that the next time there's a crisis. So they're not even letting the spread widen in the first place, unless there was a real catastrophe that, that hit the world. So uh, you're just not seeing that same opportunity. All right. Um, before we fully move on from bonds, I just want to dig a little bit into your strategy for determining when it it may make sense to start going out uh, on duration for at least treasury bonds. Um, if I heard you correctly earlier, I think you said you see opportunity there, but but not necessarily right now. Um, what will you be looking at to potentially make the decision that, okay, now's the time to actually start going further out? Yeah, we own some uh, 20 to 30 year treasury bonds, uh, say it's about 10% of our portfolio for the income strategies that we manage. But I think we're being more cognizant of the fact that it seems like it's a little bit different time in the bond cycle than what we experienced from the early 1980s through 2020 or 2021. Uh, you're starting to see yields move higher. Uh, the bonds are acting a bit differently. And we just want to be cautious while we're sort of looking at things in this new environment. So it is possible that yields can move a little bit higher, but the reason why we own them now and think this is a good time to 
have some exposure to long bonds is that when you're at the end of a Fed rate hike cycle, uh, once the rate hikes are done, and maybe July was the last rate hike, perhaps it's a little bit later in the year in November, that's the last rate hike. But historically, once the rate hikes are done, you will see yields move down in the 10 to 30 year treasury uh, over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. And that's the time that you want to own uh, those long bonds. And you could expect a double digit total return over that period of time. So it's nice to get the five, five and a half percent up front, but there's no chance for price appreciation. This would be a way to get a little bit of that. And then some, uh, if you get what we're expecting, where you have this continued slowdown in economic growth and inflation stays in this sort of contained area, and then you would see long-term bond yields start to move down. Okay. And so would you would you move when you first start seeing long-term bonds begin to come down? Or is there some sort of economic milestone that you'd be looking for to say, okay, this is when we're going to start you know, shifting more of our short-term capital to the long-term? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We've already got a decent sized position, so we would really need to see the opportunity get significantly better, I think, for us to put even more on that side. We would just view it more as you're about at the level. And I think once you get closer to the end of the year, if you really start to think you know that the rate hikes are done and rates may stay higher for longer, but they're going to stay at the current level, that would probably be the time to have that position and then just monitor it over the course of the next year or so. And we would expect to start moving in your favor. Okay. Um, so I guess the last question on this, it doesn't sound like you guys are necessarily planning to go whole hog on the on the long end of the curve at some point you, you've got a position you feel pretty comfortable in maybe you'll dribble some more in there but it, it doesn't sound like you you're waiting to put 20 percent more of your portfolio in that direction no we're not uh, i think the we've we've got we can go a little bit higher but we've got a lot of the position that we'd like at this point in time uh and so we'll we'll continue to monitor it but i think Really, what we see that short-term treasury money that we have allocated there, uh, we would see that being more of a source of funds for purchases in the riskier side of the financial markets once you see more of a pullback uh, in, in those areas. So there might be opportunities in common stocks, in energy, in REITs, uh, in preferred stocks. There's a lot of asset classes we look to for income, uh, and there's going to be better entry points. And that's where that short-term treasury money could end up going. Okay, great. Uh, uh, thanks for revealing that strategy. And folks, this is a, I love having folks who manage money on the program because you get to see how their mind thinks. He's getting the the yield right now, you know, off those instruments because it's it's risk-free, high yield right now. But it's not a permanent position for him. He's looking at that as a war chest to be able to then tap when valuations are better in other assets. I want to talk about that in just a second. Just real quick, I do believe you guys invest some in preferreds there at Oxbow. Can you just talk about your what you look for in a preferred right now? Yeah, our focus in preferred stocks right now is really just in the too big to fail banks. 
And uh, right now, because you've seen this increase in U.S. Treasury yields, you can actually get preferred stocks with a six and a half or seven percent or even higher uh, interest rate uh, or coupon rate that you can receive. And we really focused on those four too big to fail banks. So Bank of America, Citigroup, JP Morgan Chase, and Wells Fargo, because those are actually the banks that are gaining uh, in deposits and right. getting stronger over time. We would expect them to be able to withstand any sort of poor economic environment, continue paying those coupons to the preferred stockholders and, uh, and be a decent place to be. So uh, right now, I think that's the only exposure we have at this time. But if you saw a greater sell-off for risk assets, there would be more preferred stocks as well as convertible preferred stocks where you could see some great opportunities. Okay. And that that is it's a seemingly compelling argument there, which is you can get a higher rate than you can on a treasury on a preferred from like a JP Morgan. And like, look, if JP Morgan is defaulting on their preferreds, we all have much bigger problems, right? Like that, that that's a world where the economy is like not working anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that Jamie Dimon didn't see it coming then we're, yeah, we're all in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So, um, you know, when I've talked to Ted, uh, he has the, the wisdom of, uh, you know, a, a, a career that's been, you know, spanned decades uh, in managing money in the markets and, you know, talks about how, um, you know, all bear markets end with a washout, right? They, 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 they end with capitulation where really nobody wants to touch, you know, bear market equities. Nobody wants to touch a stock again at the end of it. And of course, that's sort of where the experienced people really start looking to buy, right? That's sort of the, that psychological milestone they're looking for. Um, we, despite how painful 2022 was for a lot of people, by no means did we even come close to that kind of capitulation. And obviously here in 2023, you know, everyone's trying to get the party uh, reinvigorated again. Um, uh, so when you sort of re referenced your war chest there and, and, and you, you tell us about your, your confidence that a recession is coming. Are, are you kind of expecting to have the ability at some point in the next, say, 12 to 24 months um, where you will see that capitulation and be able to take advantage of it with the war chest uh, of, you know, relatively safe capital that you're building up right now? Like, a, like is, is that kind of the plan, the, 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 the plan A, which is we think we're going to have this opportunity where enough investors get washed out that great value gets just left there on the ground for us to come pick up at great prices. Yeah, we would say that's that's what we would expect. Uh, there's always the possibility that it takes longer than you anticipate, but uh, you can go back through decades uh, and usually once every four to five years, you get a great buying opportunity in the stock market and in some other uh, asset classes as well. And it helps to have some uh, money that's safe and ready to go. And right now you can get five and a half percent on that safe money, which is fantastic. And uh, really be able to buy in at fantastic valuations. Uh, the last two times we did this uh, were two days before Christmas in 2018, right before that low. I clearly remember us putting a significant amount to work. And then March 16th of 2020, which happened to be a week before the low, uh, Ted and I put a significant amount to work. So uh, I think that's something that uh, we're always looking for. And there are certain clear signs 
that you just know uh, these are the types of prices we want to pay. This is the level of fear in the marketplace that is uh, suggestive, suggestive to us that uh, it's a good time to buy and to try and take advantage. Right now, we're just we're not seeing those valuations yet. And uh, if you look at the VIX still below 20 as a sign of fear, you're not seeing that kind of fear yet. But uh, if you keep rates this high and you see things deteriorate, uh, any sort of a shock or like you said, any additional stone on the backs of households or small businesses uh, could end up being something that makes things more difficult and leads to that fear generating. And then anyone who is ready for it can take advantage. All right. Well, Chance, let's make a, a deal here, which is um, when we get to that moment, whenever it is, when you start seeing those signs that this is the time to start deploying capital like that. Let's have you back on the channel. Let's have this conversation again. Let's have you, uh, you know, tell folks what you're what you're looking at and what you're most interested in. Um, so two questions for you as we wrap this up, Chance. This has been a great discussion. Thanks for for giving us so much of your time and, and opening your your you know, the window so much to your portfolio management. Um, uh, I know when that time arrives, so much of your decision making is going to be driven by just what the valuations are at that moment in the different asset classes there. But, um, you know, what are you looking towards with an eye that when when valuations make more sense, like what assets are you excited to buy that you're not buying right now? Sure, uh, let's. We'll go step by step. So uh, in the stock market, there will be cyclical sectors that will have sold off more. And uh, you'll see really depressed valuations, maybe even trough earnings. And we like to look out about five years and it'll be easy to project very high quality businesses that you have a reasonable idea of what the cash flows will be three to five years into the future. And uh, if you can buy that at a cheap price, that could be consumer discretionary, could be some tech businesses. Uh, financials, industrials, energy, materials, all those more cyclical areas, you'll be wanting to rotate out of healthcare, consumer staples, anything that's more defensive and move towards the cyclical areas of the market. So that's the stock market. On anybody who's trying to generate high income, uh, there'll be areas within energy uh, that you'll see an opportunity. That happened last time in 2020. Uh, there'll be areas within real estate uh, that might have sold off that you might be able to buy some REITs. The convertible preferred stocks, there's usually some companies that issued convertible preferred stocks so they could maintain an investment grade credit rating. Uh, and if their common stock prices come down, you usually can buy that at a great uh, yield and then it'll convert into a common stock and you kind of get a, a double benefit over a multi-year time horizon. Uh, there also might be some other opportunities um, within common stocks with high dividend paying uh, assets. So we always are monitoring for companies that pay a 4% dividend yield or higher or a 6% dividend yield or higher. You'll see some of those sell off, even though the businesses remain strong and may have relatively gained market share versus their peers. And that would be a good place to look as well. So depends on what your goal is, but there will be opportunities across a lot of different fronts. All right. Well, let's uh, let's hope that opportunity arrives sooner rather than later. I'm getting really tired about talking about all the warning signs on the macroeconomic side of things and, and preaching safety and would love to get to the point of the story where we get to talk about great valuations uh, and great entry points for people. Um, last question on this, which is, are there any other assets 
that you guys are holding or buying right now that we haven't talked about yet? Um, I'll toss out some candidates just because they come up relatively frequently on this program. Gold is one. Uh, energy is another one. Um, I know you just had energy in, in your previous answer, um, but some people are actively buying some energy companies right now, given the attractiveness of that relative attractiveness of that sector. But are there any assets that are worth noting that we haven't touched on yet? Yeah, I think uh, first, just to touch on the energy, we do own some energy assets in our income strategy. And that focus is more on the more, what we would consider defensive part within the energy sector. So the pipelines which are in about as strong a fundamental position as they've been in in their history. They've paid down a lot of their debt. They generate a lot more cash flow beyond what they pay in dividends, which they pay a good dividend yield somewhere between six and 10%, depending on which ones you own. But we own some of those pipeline businesses and then also own a, uh, an oil royalty business. Uh, that's just a very high quality business model because they don't have the same expense base they have to deal with as if you were a, uh, an actual driller for oil. Mm -hmm. On the gold side, uh, we do have keep some exposure to actual gold and then uh, to a few high quality gold royalty or gold miners. And that's been something that we've had in the portfolio for several years. And we think that's just a good place to be uh, to try and maintain and grow purchasing power in a way that's diversified from the rest of the portfolio. All right. Well, look, Chance, we'll have to end it here, but um, just a wonderful conversation. Again, thank you for being so transparent. Um, it's really valuable when I can bring on a capital manager like you who just walks people through you know, the logic in their head of why they're why they're making the decisions they are, or as you've done here, you know, kind of you've detailed the playbook for the, the strategy you're going to use once the buying conditions come into play. So thank you again for being so generous with that. Um, for folks that have really enjoyed this conversation, and would like to follow you and your work, where should they go? Yeah, you can learn more about us at oxbowadvisors.com or visit our YouTube channel uh, under the label Oxbow Advisors. Okay, so if folks are looking to stay on top of your work, go to the website. Um, also, I know that you guys do um, uh, interviews sort of like this on YouTube periodically, and folks can see you in conversation with other people in this space, correct? Yeah, I think the YouTube channel is a great place to go. Uh, we try to post uh, something at least once a month, providing a little bit of our view on what's happening in the marketplace. And then we also like to do interviews of uh, other professionals that we respect a lot in the industry and uh, just have a good dialogue going of all the things that we think are valuable to know about how to invest your money. Great. All right. And folks, as I said in the intro, um, Oxbow, their main focus is high net worth individuals. Um, they kind of specialize in the entrepreneur who had a big liquidity event, you know, sold their business, sitting on a big pile of cash, doesn't know necessarily what to do with the cash and maybe even necessarily what to do with themselves now that they've sold, they've handed their reason for being over to somebody else. So if you fall in that category, um, definitely give the guys from Oxbow a, a shout. Um, but for all of the macro issues that that Chance and I talked about here, um, it, you know, it should be self-evident at this point. But this is why we recommend that you know the vast majority of people who view this channel should be navigating what's ahead uh, under the guidance of a good financial advisor who understands all these macro issues. Um, if you are, and if you're not a a high net worth uh, account like I just mentioned, um, or an entrepreneur who just sold their business. Um, if you don't have a good advisor who's advising you, consider talking to one of the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses. Uh, to do that, just fill out the short form at Wealthion.com. 
these consultations are totally free. Uh, there's no commitment to work with these guys. It's just a free public service they offer to help as many people as uh, position as prudently as possible in advance of the developments that that Chance uh, referred to here. And if you'd like to see Chance back on this program again in the future, especially when he starts seeing the indicators that tell him it's starting to be time to look at buying things, uh, do me a favor, um, voice your support for that by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Chance, again, it's been a wonderful hour. Thank you so much for your time. Any parting bits of wisdom for, for folks as we wrap things up here? No, I think just uh, continue to be mindful of the environment and uh, yeah, just be prudent with what you're doing. There'll be great opportunities down the road, but right now it just pays to uh, just stay on top of what you have. All right, Chance, thanks so much again. Everyone else, thanks so much for watching. Thank you.